Greetings. I'm excited to share with you the following produced interview between Love and Fury director Sterling Harjo and settlement digital occupation concept artist Chinupahanska Luger. For those of you who don't know, settlement is an indigenous digital worldwide occupation conceived as a month long indigenous led encampment. In Central Park, Plymouth, UK, settlement was to take place in the summer of 2020 within the context of the Mayflower 400 commemoration events. In the face of the COVID-19 pandemic and with over two years of planning, the Indigenous artists, along with the UK production team, pivoted away from an on-site engagement. In the spirit of survivance, the Indigenous artists have reimagined their monumental site-specific project as Settlement, an innovative year-long Indigenous digital occupation. Participating artists have gracefully adapted their projects as a succession of online artworks, performances, artist discussions, social engagements, and films. Presented for one year, this new work invites a global audience to have meaningful interaction with the Indigenous people of North America and into the Pacific. For the interview you're about to hear, we have um, Sterling Harjo, who's the director of Love and Fury, and settlement artist Chinupahanska Luger. I hope you enjoy the program and you can learn more at www.sttlmnt.org. We wanted to put together something because our um, digital occupation in uh, uh, Plymouth, UK. Um, changed a lot. It's changed a changed, lot. <laughs> yeah. Our physical, our physical occupation in, in uh, Plymouth, UK transformed into a digital occupation. So that gives us a bit of agency as far as um, how we engage with all of this, but it also undermined a lot of the um, ways that we could engage with community. So this opens up a larger audience, um, but it's yeah. not as intimate, I suppose, as, as a physical occupation. Um, yeah. But in the in the process of, of uh, uh, developing this whole plan and coming up with this um, uh, settlement project, you were there. You were there at like, you know, randomly, um, Round zero. Kind of surprisingly, uh, in the UK at the same time as I. Uh, and we talked, you asked me kind of what, like a week before, maybe two yeah, weeks before yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. to be a part of your film, Love and Fury. And um, uh, after we kind of filmed and were a part of that whole thing, uh, you know, at that time, I was really just developing the the base of what this um occupation could potentially be like we ended up you know asking 30 native artists to come from different regions different tribal affiliations um as representatives for uh, uh, a 21st century indigenous experience and you coincidentally were working on a film called love and fury that was yeah. um I guess the first question that I would like to ask you, you know, on, on this is why yeah. did you want to make Love and Fury? Yeah. So like, you know, I've just been such a big fan of native art, like native art has been, you know, I started out as a painting major. I mean, like when I was a kid, um, I, I, I was drawing pictures since I was a kid. So like, um, I remember the first memories that I have, some of the first memories I have were drawing and like, I would draw, um, I would draw like, uh, what I call potato people. 
because they were just like a ball with legs and arms and a smiley face and eyes. And that's what I drew forever. And I would just draw images of like scenes of like these potato people. And I did that for a long time. And I remember when I was about four, my uncle was a really good artist and my dad is a really good artist. And they, they, I was in there drawing and I was drawing some of these potato people. And I remember my uncle who was only five years older than me. So he was like a brother to me. And, and, and in that relationship, like a brother, we fought like brothers, but we also had fun like brothers. Um, you know, everything that's involved with brothers is what kind of the relationship that we had. And I remember him kind of, uh, you know, like almost throwing a diss at me, kind of like, why do you draw like that? Like, why do you, why do you draw these potato people? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I'm just drawing people. And he was like, draw people, like draw real people. And I was like, I don't know how. And him and my dad were there. And they both said, draw, uh, and my uncle said, draw a stick man. You know how to draw a stick man? Draw a stick man. And I knew how to draw a stick man. So I drew a stick man. And he was like, all right, now put uh, meat on the stick man, like draw some meat on him. And so I drew like an outline around him. And then he was like, all right, now draw pants on him. And so I drew pants on him and he was like, all right, draw a shirt on him. And I drew a shirt on him. And he was like, now draw hair. And I drew hair. And I literally had this like, and I remember it very vividly, just like a tutorial of drawing a human. And from that point on, I didn't draw potato people anymore. And like, I grew up with a dad who always kind of like beat it into me that he could have been an artist. He always said that, like, I could have done something with my art and I never did. And then on the, at the same time, my grandma, his mom would always say, uh, to me, you know, Sterling, you, you're, you're really good at drawing. Don't, don't waste it. Do something with it. Your dad could have been a famous artist. Don't waste it. Do something. And so that was like beat into me from the earliest age. Like, I don't remember when, when they weren't saying that to me. And so growing up, it continued. And they always said that to me. It was just like, don't ever give up. Don't waste your talent. Like do this. Like even my dad, who at the time was younger than I am now could have easily just kept drawing and like making art, but like he just did it. And he was like, cause he was working construction. He was a roofer. He was building houses. He was making money for the family. And he, but he, he would always say like, don't waste what you have. Like, don't waste it. Like, like make, like I wasted mine. Don't do that. And so I was just like programmed from an early age that I was going to be an artist and nothing was going to stop me. And so through, throughout high school, throughout everything, I remember when I was like 10, I got my first award for being an artist, which was like the, the, the town, the chamber of commerce put a competition on that was do a drawing about pollution, anti-pollution. And so I drew this picture of like, um, the ocean and boats and shit. And like, it was all about pollution and how humans are polluting the earth and fish were like sick and floating to the top and like all this stuff. And I won first place and I went to the bank and they took photos. I was in the paper with my mom and I remember I got a $10 check and I thought I was like fucking rich. Like I thought that was like it, you know, I was like, holy shit. But like just that recognition of people, like seeing something in my art that they liked, it was just enough to like, I was just like, Oh yeah, this is what I'm doing. And so throughout like grade school and high school, I was always the kid that like someone went to for drawing. So like, if you had to draw something, 
I was the person to do it, like a poster yeah. or something. Like I would always be the one to draw it. We were the Wolverines. We were the Holdenville Wolverines. I, I drew so many Wolverines on like game posters and shit that we would hang up and stuff. And, um, and you know, like I just was that kid. Like I, I started entering what we had, which like, uh, it was like, um, it was called, um, I don't know what it was called academic something, but it was like the, uh, smart kids. So it was like the smart kids always get to leave school and go to a competition and compete for being smart. Well, they also had an art department <laughs> and so or an art category. And so I was always <laughs> hanging out with these smart kids cause I could draw and like, I would get the art out in and smart. <laughs> exactly. So I would go and I would win. I would win. I would win drawing competitions. I would win art competitions. And then I remember even stepping into doing a play. I had a two man show that I did with this guy that was about the civil war. And we were like a Southern soldier versus a Northern soldier. I was a Northern soldier. And we were like, it, it was called breaking of the bread. It was a two man play. And we, we made it to the finals. And I remember like <laughs> it was the finals and we had to do it again. And there's a point where the Southern soldier gets the Northern soldier on the ground. It's about to stab him with a bayonet. So I'm on the ground and he forgot his line. And so I just like kept repeating his line to him and he kept going. And then he was like breaking character and going, what, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? And I was like, dude, say the line, say the line. And then we just started <laughs> cracking up laughing and we just stood up and walked off. And like the judges just watched us leave. We didn't say anything. And, um, <laughs> You know, so I had all this experience with art and I had some like amazing art teachers. Like I had this teacher um, and this was like in high school when we're smoking pot and like skipping class and stuff. But we would make sure we always went to the art class. And we had this teacher named Mr. B. And Mr. B was like this guy who was amazing, still alive, great guy. Uh, he was one of those teachers that like, that just like, teaches you more about life than the subject that they're talking about. So he was yeah. always talking to me about life, but also art. And he was a white guy. He had MS, he had cataplexy, which is a crazy disorder where like when your adrenaline rushes, you just like go catonic. You just like, you just you can't move. You're conscious, but you can't move. And so he had all these like ailments, but he was this amazing artist and still is. And, um, he was just like uh, an inspiration for me and like really saw something in me and also just my friends. It didn't matter if you were into art or not. It just mattered if he saw something in you and he would, you were like his chosen people. And for me, I was like a chosen person, but I was like also an artist. And so he would encourage me. And I remember he had this advice for me. He said, um, he said, whatever you do, don't have a fallback plan because you'll fall back. And hmm. he said, he said, I, I wanted to be a painter and I had a fallback plan, which was being a teacher. And here I am being a teacher. I didn't want to be a teacher. I want to be a painter. And he was like, no matter what you do, don't have a fallback plan. And I just like it embedded in me. And I never let that go. I just like to the day I die, I'm going to be an artist and I'm not going to accept anything else. And it was a lesson in like diving off a cliff and not, um, looking back and just like not, not, not being afraid. And it's words that I like keep to this day. And like, you know, one of the things about him, you know, that I know now looking back was he would talk to me about native art. He knew more than I did about native art. My native art knowledge was cheesy native art with like, you know, natives with like white guys painted with like 
wolf heads and like buffaloes in the sky and shit. Right. And I was like, I was like totally against it. I was just like, it's bullshit. That's not who we are, you know? And it wasn't what I knew as being a native. And so I always was just like rejected native art wholesale, just like not, I'm not doing that. That's not what I do. But he would always let me talk this shit and would still talk about native artists. And like slowly, he didn't do it fast. He didn't do it like one day. He would just like slowly introduce me to a native artist that I would be like, oh, that guy's cool. Like that, that female's cool. Like that, that artist is amazing. Right. And what I realized now what he was doing was like, he knew that someday I would come around to native art and he was just letting me do it on my terms. And, and then I remember when I graduated high school, you know, we were really close. Like we ended up like, I would go to his house after I graduated, hang out. And at that time we had graduated and he was like a, he used to be a chain smoker when we were in high school, but he had quit for health reasons. And so he, um, we would go to his house and he was like, yeah, you guys can smoke. We were all little badasses smoking cigarettes. And so we were graduated. We thought we were adults and we would smoke cigarettes and hang out. And I remember he gave me a birthday present or a graduation present. That was a native, a book of native dolls made throughout history in different tribes of dolls that they made. And I remember thinking at the time, he knows that I don't, want to do this style of art that I consider native art, but he gave me this book of this art that I didn't know existed and it was different and it was really interesting. And he didn't say anything behind it. He just gave me this book. And I realize now that like, he was always pushing me to be a native artist and to embrace who I was and where I was from. He just knew that I need to find it myself and find my Avenue and lane towards it. And, you know, like I remember being in his house and we're doing the thing, we're smoking cigarettes and hanging out. And I remember he put on a film by Fellini, um, which like, you know, in we woke up Oklahoma, no one's watching Fellini, right? Like no one's watching Fellini films, but he put on this film Fellini. I think it was La Strada. And he, 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 as we were watching it, it was weird. Right? It's a total weird movie. Like I was just like, what are we watching this for? <laughs> but he kept, but he kept telling me, you know, like he, cause he had taught me like, um, complementary colors and harmony and paintings and like how you can balance a painting and like what, what the art, art, you know, like, um, like, uh, cur- art curriculum, basically. Like he taught me all of these sort of techniques and, yeah. and theory, art theory. And, we're watching the film and I remember he started saying, um, now look, there's a person in a red, there's like three people in red robes in the scene. And then right at the moment that, that, that they are kind of becoming full frame, all of a sudden someone in a green robe walks in and you have these like complementary colors playing with each other in this wide screen scene. And it's like, all of this is like, they made this like all like this was all thought out. It wasn't just, it wasn't just like, you know, happenstance like this, the the artist behind this film made this happen. And it was the first time that I had ever known that there was art behind cinema, you know? And then um, I went on and I went to college and when I was in college, I still wanted to be a painter. I didn't think anything about film, but I'd always loved film. 
And when I was in college, I just wanted to be a painter. I was in painting school. And you know, your first year of college, a lot of people fuck off. And that's what I did. Like I just kind of partied and like my grades were not important. So all my basics, I just like flunked. And, um, and so I got put on academic probation for the art school, which is like, it's hard to do, right? Like, like what do you have to do to make a, to stay in art school? And so they put me on academic probation. So I couldn't take any art classes after that. And I, I was partying with these guys, these, these folks from Owasso, Oklahoma, that I became like close friends of mine. They introduced me to books. They introduced me to art that I'd never heard of. They introduced me to punk rock. I thought that was like the devil's music. Like I didn't know what it was. You know, I only listened to like classic rock, you know, and like country. And they introduced me to this whole other thing. And then also books. Like it's the first time I read like on the road and like catcher in the rye and all literature. Like I never like read anything before really. And, um, and so I'm, I'm like hanging out with them and, and one of them, I was like sleeping on their porch. Like they just, they were renovating a house and we would all just like party and sleep on their porch. And across the street from one of them lived, uh, lived the head of the film and video studies department at the university of Oklahoma. And I, and I just recently started trying to write a screenplay. And so they were like, one of the guys was like, man, you should talk to the guy across the street. Like, he's a film dude, like go see what's up. And so like, I went to this guy in his office and I said, Hey, I want to send you a screenplay. Um, and see what's up. I'm just telling you my whole story. I, I, I know that your answer was like, your, your question was like, well, I love it, but I'm telling you the whole thing. <laughs> Yo, so this, I was is, like, <laughs> this is why, man, this is why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was like, so I sent him my script and it was horrible. It was awful. It was like, it was so bad, but it was like, it was about two native guys from my hometown going on a pilgrimage to Woody Guthrie's hometown because one of them had just read the book on the road or not on the road, uh, bound for glory, which is Woody Guthrie's sort of autobiography. And Woody got, so like literally Woody Guthrie lives was born 30 minutes from where I'm from. So they're literally only traveling 30 minutes down the road to <laughs> on this pilgrimage. That's what the whole film was about. It was awful. It was so bad. But, you know, like, and, there, and I sent it to him and he wrote me back. And he was like, I'm not reading this. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'm not reading this until you format it right. This is not a screenplay. And so I was like, shit. So then I had to go read a bunch of screenplays and I had to reformat this screenplay and send it back to him. And he liked it a lot and was like, you should take film and video studies. Then I took a film and video studies course with this guy named Misha Nedeljkovic, who was this Hungarian filmmaker, this teacher guy from there. And it, game over. Like, as soon as I took his class, he introduced me to what is the language of cinema. I didn't know it was a language. I didn't know you could tell story. I didn't know you could talk with it. I didn't know different shots meant things. I didn't know anything about that. And once I figured out that it was a language, it was like, that's what I want to do the rest of my life. And, and painting got put on the back burner. It was just like, I want to do film. So long story. That's a long answer to say that I still love art. I love native art. I grew to love native art. I became like this person that was obsessed with the history of native art, specifically the sort of um, Bacon style of art in Oklahoma, like Fred Beaver, like Woody Crumbo, like, like all these folks that were from this school, the Bacon school where they all learned art. There's a ton of them, you know, like drum tiger. So I got into like native art and I just, 
I discovered it as this like very subversive art and like this art that was like, it was, it was existing in this place that was in opposition to mainstream art. And I just loved that. I loved that there was a language there that, that it was its own thing. And so even though I gave up art myself as, you know, art, like, like capital A, I still love native art. And like, I just like, that's the, that's the people I surround myself with. And that's the people that I am, am attracted to. And like all of, all of art makes its way into film, whether it's music, whether it's painting, whether it's writing, all of it makes its way into film. So that's why I love it. I also love it that it's immediate and the image is immediate. It's not like I don't have to wait three days for an oil painting to dry or so I can do another layer or whatever, you know, I'm sure there's easier ways yeah. to do it. But like, um, so, so all of it led to this, that I just have always had this love for art and like music, like is something that is just really important to me. So in the back of my mind, like, so one of the, so the films that I love, like, documentaries that I love have always been these, these documentaries that capture a moment. They capture art in a moment. And I just am obsessed with that, with that style of filmmaking. Um, and I was doing my own style of doing narrative films, but I always, but I'd always made documentaries to make money. I'd always done documentaries and I slowly learned how to make documentaries as I was like doing narrative films that only happened like once every couple of years. But the documentaries I could keep shooting, all I needed was a camera and just go film. And so, like, at one point, I went and worked for the Seminole Nation, and they just asked me, do a documentary about the history of the Seminoles. And I was like, this fucking huge documentary. <laughs> so I was doing a 30-minute 30, 30 documentary about the 30 minutes, Seminoles. the history yeah, of the exactly, Seminoles. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so I was just driving back roads. It was just me and a camera and a sound equipment by myself. And I was driving back roads of dusty Oklahoma going to these places with these people. Sometimes I would find relatives, like just like people in the sticks and I would go and interview them and I would talk about the Seminole nation. Some of them would be historians, some of them would just be people. And I just like, it was, that, that was one of the best summers of my life, just driving by myself, the back roads of Oklahoma, interviewing people. And I captured so much great stuff. I made the documentary. I got paid nothing. I, remember, I think I made that for like $4,000 and like, you know, spent a lot of time on it, but like I, I was learning how to make documentary. And then I did a documentary show for this magazine until it's called this land press. And I just like formulated sort of a style of documentary. And then I made a documentary called this may be the last time, which is about, um, it's about the disappearance of my grandpa in 1962, but it's also tied into this history of songs that we have in the Seminole, Seminole and Muscogee Creek people. And it's sort of a history lesson in our, in our people, but like through music. And so, you know, I learned a lot doing that. It, it premiered at Sundance and did pretty well. So, I, so basically like I had, you know, and some of my favorite films is like, like I was saying, like um, there's this film called Heartworn Highways. That's about uh, Texas outlaw country music. And this is back in the 70s. So it's like Towns Van Zandt, Guy Clark, Steve Earle, all of these guys, you know, like sort of at, at the, at the uh, beginnings of their career. And I loved 
that documentary so much and I love the style of it. And then I got into Les Blank documentaries and Les Blank made a documentary about the making of uh, Fitzcarraldo by Werner Herzog. He also made uh, documentaries about lightning Hopkins, the blues guy in Texas. He made a documentary about uh, Max Lipcomb, which is like this other blues guy in Texas. And, you know, and he made a lot of like short documentaries like that. And he just captured these moments. And he also made a really amazing documentary shot in Tulsa. A lot of it was shot in Tulsa called A Poem as a Naked Person. And it's about Leon Russell. And it's the Leon Russell is making this album, uh, a country album. And he's recording him in Tulsa. He's recording just like vignettes of them hanging out. He records him filming, uh, recording his music in Nashville. But it is—it's called a poem as a naked person. It's very much a poem of a documentary. And at first, Leon Russell, who kind of was the producer on it, didn't want it to come out because he was like, "That's not a film. Like, what is this? Like, what is this? You know?" Because it wasn't your 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 normal bio documentary about an artist. But then years and years later. Leon Russell saw the beauty in it and was like, let's release this. And so they released it. It's a beautiful documentary. So, um, you know, all the artists in the film I'd love, like, I just like giant fans of everyone. And, you know, I, I was thinking like, there's not been a documentary to capture sort of what's going on right now with native artists, which is like this, ultimate expression, this sort of freedom to be who we are from our own communities. Um, if we want to talk pan-Indian, we can. If we want to be very specific about our tribes, we can. We we have different mediums. We have different ways of approaching it. Um, some of us can be super overtly Native in our imagery. Some of us can hide that imagery. Some of us reject it altogether. It's just like, it. it, it was this it was this sort of movement I think that I started seeing happening that hadn't been documented. And I wanted to do a film on that. And like, but it wasn't good enough just to do a film on people that I knew. I wanted to find new people. And I was approached by a person in Tulsa who had money for a film and they'd been a fan of my film. They were just like, I had this money whatever you want to make, let's make something. And so I was like, shit, like I, I thought about it for a long time. I was like, I went through so many ideas of what I could do. And then finally I was like, I'm just going to make this documentary about artists. Like that's what I've wanted to do forever. You're like, I got this screenplay and it's about these guys exactly. going to uh Woody Guthrie's place, 30 exactly. miles down the yeah, road. Yeah. Never made it. It's ready to go. I haven't touched yeah, it for years. Yeah. It's ready to go. Um, and so, you know, one of the people that I sort of discovered was um, Micah P. Henson. And Micah was, is this musician from Texas. And, I, and I'd heard about him. I never, like, a, I, one day I started listening. The reason that it made me want to include Micah in this film is his brother wrote me. And I'm friends with his brother. And his brother is the head of the Chickasaw Nation Language Department. Huh. And, he and, and he and I we're going to go bird hunting together. He's a bird hunter. I've never bird hunted and I like hunting. So I was like, we'd been talking about bird hunting and in this crazy random way, um, he had seen that I posted a photo of a show called meat eater. That's on Netflix. And the guy that hosts meat eater and is also an author is this guy named Steve Ranella. 
Well, Steve Ranella once announced that he was a big fan of Micah P. Henson. And so he saw this photo that I posted online of Meat Eater. And Josh, the head of the Chick-fil-A Nation Department, wrote me and he was like, that guy's a big fan of my brother. You should check him out. And I was like, who the fuck's your brother? And he was like, Micah P. Henson. And so I started listening to Micah and I was like, holy shit, like, there's this Chickasaw guy that I had no idea. And no one else knew that he was Native either. And that excited me because, like, I don't want to just make a film about the people that everyone knows. Like I want to make a film about people that they don't know. I want to make it about everyone. I want to make it about people that you would never know and people that you already knew, but knew, but learned something different about or people that you didn't know about and you just see them perform. Like I just was like excited about that. And then another artist was um, Haley, Haley Greenfeather because I didn't know about her either. And I saw her work and it was so sort of, it just was exciting to me and different. And I was like, there was just this like energy to it that I wanted to like share with people, you know? And so I started thinking of all these artists and like, and, and when I began, it was going to be, um, you, Micah, Haley, um, and Penny Hill, who's my good friend who I'd been making music videos for who's Choctaw. And you know, like her music, you know, you don't know that she's native or whatever, but like she's native. And so like, I just wanted to like, that was the four people I wanted to follow and do this documentary. And because I was a fan of Heartworn Highways, I also was like, when I make this film, I want to just be open to whoever comes into the fray, whoever comes to the fray and they're into it, I'll roll them into the documentary and we will just make this collage film, like a poem. It's like a poem that I wanted to make of native art. And so that was sort of the initial idea, you know, and I didn't know if it would happen, but I had this money and I called uh, Micah out of the blue. He didn't know me. His brother put me in touch with him and he said he was about to go to Europe. And I was like, wait a minute. I think Chinupa told me that he also is going to be in Europe. And so we put two and two together and that was our first trip on, on the documentary. And when I was with fire thief productions, which was a company that I started and we just like traveled with my crew to, uh, we, and you know, before we left, we watched heartworn highways, we watched less blank films. And it was like, this is the style in which we're going to make this film. And you know, there is a more modern style of making a film, which is, you know, uh, you see it a lot on like Netflix and stuff. It's like slow motion, really beautiful B-roll over interviews, sit down interview. And I was like, we're not we're just, and that's kind of how I made my last film and a lot of other documentaries. But with this one, it was like, we're going to make this like they made it in the seventies. So we're going to pretend we don't know anything about editing and anything that's went on in storytelling and documentaries from the seventies. So like we would watch these films and it was like, okay, everyone with a camera has to pretend they're the only camera in the room. So if you don't capture what's happening, no one does. Yeah. And we can't cut. We just zoom in or zoom out slowly. And also, you know, like we don't stop rolling. We just film everything. And you know, that's going to get boring, but, sometimes in that boredom, you'll find these like beautiful moments, you know? And so that was the plan. And then we went first person that we filmed was we hit Micah up first and we, we landed in Brussels and started filming with him. We filmed a couple of shows. We went to Paris and 
filmed the show there. And then we went on this like long train ride to find you in Plymouth. <laughs> which was fucking crazy. Like, yeah, just a whole different world there, man. Looks like, uh, <laughs> you know, like you, when you're taking that train to Plymouth, it sort of feels like you're in a different world to me. Like it was like the fogs, the rain. It was like, um, it was like Narnia. <laughs> it was like, I know it's it like, like, it's like <laughs> the far South of, of the UK, you know, is this really, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's something like, um, I don't know. You go through Wales, you end up like down around Cornwall and there's like this whole yeah. kind of like, um, uh, uh, the, the mystique of the UK, like not London, not the like urban center, but this like, um, um yeah. Narnia slash like yeah. fairy fairyland, you know, like Celtic. And it's and, not like a quick, it's not like a quick drop, like a, like a quick train ride. It is like four and a half hours of of the country and then you're you know and it's like you i always thought of like london as like tech like like you could drive across that it's like oklahoma like you could drive across it in a day you know like a couple yeah. couple hours but you know it's like four hours just to get to this place and you know there's the seasonal depression thing that's happening which is like everything's cloudy and rainy <laughs> and you know it's like just old world shit that I'd never seen. Like these, like it was like this town, this city of like this village, but like, you know, we ran into you, you were doing the, um, I think you were working with the, the theater kids and yeah. we started filming like right off the bat. We just saw you. And, uh, yeah. Right, is this cool? We're going to film. <laughs> no, it was, it was pretty, it was weird. Like that was also my first time engaging with the, uh, the UK and the group there. And I think yeah. that was probably like, um, I think it might've been my first kind of engagement with anybody outside of the conscious sisters who were hosting me, you know? Yeah. And so it was, I know for myself, it was like strange and a relief to see you all there, yeah, you yeah. know? No, like, I can tell. Like, whenever we saw you, it was like, oh my God, there's people from home here, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that I, I kind of am picking up from, um, you know, I'm grateful of the, of, of the long way to get to that conversation because yeah. you mentioned, you know, all of the uh, art theory that you were kind of introduced to and... Um, and, you know, you hold the, the, you know, capital A art in this place. But I, I just keep thinking of like what its primary purpose is, is to communicate, you know, and like composition of frame, like this is the canvas, you know? And so like, you know, this is the medium that I'm going to use to communicate with. And that's true for every artist, you know, musician, uh, uh, painter, sculptor, and filmmaker, yeah when you reduce it all down, we're all just trying to communicate. And I, and I think that there's something interesting in love and fury because it, it's, it's gathering, it's gathering information around a moment in time where, um, I guess indigenous artists are not subject necessarily to the, um, the market that was designed for their parents, you know? And so there's something really kind of interesting in that space to gather, like how people navigate it because everybody who's doing it, uh, uh, today 
are not necessarily riding on the on the shirt tails of their parents, but rather learning yeah. from from what they had done or you know different angles to to engage with that, you know, and identity seems to be like one of these things that keeps popping up for native people in response to a 21st century experience. So like, yeah, I felt like the, the, the concept of love and fury, when you told me about it, I was like, yeah, absolutely. I think that there is, um, space and necessity to, to communicate that through a lens that isn't our own. Like that's what we're all trying to do, but we're limited by, what the scope yeah. is and who our reach is, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, like it was interesting because, you know, not knowing where the film was going to go. Um, and, you know, like we were like beholden to people's schedules, like Penny Hill was going, we were going to follow her, her on tour as well, but then the tour sort of fell through. So she ended up, I only ended up filming with her for like a day. Um, but what I sort of banked on when I started the film and what I found as we made the film was I, I just felt that I was noticing the same conversations were happening across all mediums and between all native artists was, uh, you know, even though we're doing different things, we have different values, we have different perspectives. There was still these similar conversations happening about native art from the past also identity also like breaking the shackles of identity breaking the shackles of 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 the pigeonholed native art side of things also like navigating institutions and holding them accountable and you know being more engaged in that process which i feel like up till that point we were just sort of like you know, subject to whatever they wanted, you know, and they yeah, led the conversation. They led the conversation. Whereas now I feel like we are leading the conversation and they have to catch up. And I feel like when love and fury was made, it was a point where that was changing and we could see it in some of the conversations that were happening in the film. Right. Yeah. The agency that we have today, um, is, yeah. is increased tenfold. And I think a lot of it has to do with, um, access to communication. You know, if, if every art piece that we're doing is trying to talk and share our stories, um, we also have this platform, you know, um, the internet and communication across those lenses. And that really opened up the opportunity for indigenous people to, um, share concepts and also like the effects of, of that external kind of pressure. Um, and yeah. once, once, once it like stacks and there are so many people having that same kind yeah. of like pushback against it and we're talking to each other about it, it just, there's a tipping point. Right. And, yeah. and yeah, I think there was. Well, and also in that, in that same conversation, what is happening is we're being honest. We are being honest about, <laughs> our work we're being honest about how we feel in these institutions and once people start being honest and once they are free to be honest i mean the train has left the station and yeah. it's like you you know it's same thing with like uh heartworn highways that film was told at a point where those texas songwriters were getting popular outlaw country was getting popular all of a sudden people started looking to them 
for the future of their of what they were into. And the train had left the station. And and you know, they you had to follow them. And I feel like it's the same thing with all the artists in Love and Fury. It's like, you know, and and you know, like one of the things we wanted to keep filming. I mean, like we were trying to go up like Caroline Monet and like Nick Galanin and Laura Ortman, they all had like a, a Whitney thing going on after that. And we were trying to go back up there to film more, but we didn't have the budget. And like it, you know, so even as we were filming in real time, all of these artists were catapulting into these other arenas and you had this talk of diversity and why, and like who is holding, holding the, um, the power and, and saying who gets into these museums or institutions and who doesn't. And there came a point and I feel like it happened and, and whether it's in my film or not, it still happened at the same period where I feel like all the institutions, all, anyone surrounding themselves with native native art or concerned with native art realized, Oh shit. Like we don't dictate what it is anymore. They do. The artists do. They are the conversation that's happening and they are leaving the the train. Like I said, the train is leaving. We can jump on and try to keep up or not, you know, but there's really interesting stuff going on. And I feel like that's happening right now for sure. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, even with my show, you know, it's like all of a sudden I have a show now, you know, and they're like not. And I've been working at this forever, you know, like I've been not making money in film. I was reading a uh, interview that I did like four years ago, just happened to see it. And the whole interview, I'm just talking about how, yeah, I don't know how to make money doing this. I don't know if I can keep doing it because there is zero money doing it. Like, I don't I don't know how to make a living. Um. And then like four years later, I have a TV show, you know, and like I got paid as a writer for the first time in my life, you know, and I feel like that's happening throughout the art, the native with throughout native art is like, there is this interest because all of a sudden people are realizing how interesting it is. And just like stuff that we'd known for years, you know, like when I met you, you know, like everyone in Santa Fe, when I met you, everyone in that crew, whether it's Micah, Rose, whatever, like, people were making this interesting art that post commodity, Nathan, like Raven, like Laura, everyone was making this interesting art, but we were doing it on a smaller level in these like little side galleries and things just being kind of punk rock about it. Mm -hmm. But that was the beginning of everything that's happening right now. You know, Um, I mean, when I met you, you had that, uh, it was the day that your brother almost beat up Ryan Redcorn uh, (laughs) in the plaza. But um, yeah, let me also say uh, Ryan Redcorn was dressed in a towel with hipster wrote across (laughs) his chest. And isn't exactly the most phenotypically native person ever, which my brother is an either. Even your brother, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which we were just like excited that your brother and Ryan Redcorn, these kind of like wider individuals, would be rolling around in the plaza (laughs) fighting. And Ryan was half naked with a headdress on because we were making a 1491s video. And like his brother did not realize that we were doing that. He just saw a guy that looked white running around with a headdress on that said hipster on his chest. He was like, I'm going to fuck this guy up. And then he took off. And I was like, got so worked up that even after, (laughs) yeah, even after he found out, he was still mad about it and was still like, I think I should still punch him. Be like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I remember, I just remember standing there and I didn't know where Ryan went and 
I, it was the day I met Ginger. It was the day I met you. And I remember you coming out and just going, yeah, it's crazy, man. Like, uh, my brother is about to go beat somebody's ass. Apparently there's someone dressed in a headdress running around like gyrating all over the plaza. He's going to go beat him. I was like, Oh shit, that's Ryan. We're making a video. <laughs> <laughs> but point is that was like, you know, that was in some side gallery on the plaza, like yeah. very punk rock, like, you know, having some Indian market, that, you know, yeah, like during the market. Like, yeah. Yeah. No one it's, wanted to buy your shit. <laughs> It's, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, just in the scope of, of um, history and relevance around all of that is, you know, what that market had done was put a kink in a hose, you know? And yeah. so that kink in the hose, like, allowed a little bit of, of Native work and concept kind of trickle out of that hose. But it was building up a lot of back-end pressure. And that back-end pressure, I mean, we're talking like, 200 years of back-end pressure, you know, at least 60 totally. in the art world, but like what work was allowed to trickle into the market yeah. um, relocated us to a historical context and really didn't allow us to express um, what has happened in the last 200 years. And that buildup, I think, generated an entire generation of people who were ready to burst, you know? Yeah. I mean, do you, do you, do you think that you remember the moment where that started changing? Do you, do you remember like yourself going like, Whoa, this is something different's happening. Yeah. I would, I would definitely say, I mean, just from my own career, my mother's a, a native artist, yeah. you know? And so she had five kids raised us all on an art career as a single mother, you know? And um, I know that there were economically good times in the 80s and 90s. You know, there was a lot of artists of my parents' generation who uh, got acclaim, got recognition, and could monetarily survive their children. And I know for, like, generations that has been um, going, but I know the 80s was, like, a, a really good kind yeah. of time for the reception of Native art. Um, but it was still kind of like, um, cultivating r romantic gaze of native yeah. people and, and very, um, uh, the market was dictating a lot of what that work was, you know? And I saw it firsthand, like my mother, um, wanting to do like other things, you know what I'm saying? Like really? Yeah. And, and like, she was a stone sculptor. So she would sculpt these like abstract forms out of stone and yet had to bread and butter like mothers and babies, you know, to um, to sustain us as a family, you know. Yeah. And so she got really good at producing the the market's demand, you know. And I would say like so I graduated from the Institute of American Indian Arts. The, um, that exhibition was a was a humble exhibition, which was. Um, uh, uh, an art collective. Tons that, of people, tons of people that are working right now in native art were from that. Yeah. Collective. And, and we were, we were all students at the Institute of American Indian arts yeah. and we were living in Santa Fe, which was a hub for native art. And yet the hub did not have a place for us, you know, like the work yeah. we were interested in. Um, we had to, we had to make our own, uh, space in order to Spaces, like, yeah. yeah, in order to like, share these ideas, you know? And I think the thing that I noticed probably around the time that I uh, graduated from, from my undergrad is the market that was kind of driving native art um, 
you know, became uh, saturated by by a handful of collectors, and that yeah. handful of collectors um, began to die, like literally began to die, and with their deaths. Yeah their collections were coming out on, um, they filled like every museum uh, yeah. in America, you know, their collections were donated to these prestigious museums and, yeah. and, and things like that. And as more and more of them died, the museums got full. That work was coming out on the secondary market and it was all the work that their demand um, had our population producing. And yeah. so, with that saturation of work, um, all of the museums, all of the institutions realized that what native artists were producing wasn't um, necessarily uh, uh, their model of what native art yeah. could be. You know, rather it was what the, the market was dictating what native art yeah, was. Yeah. And so they realized that they were behind um the time as far as what, what does it mean for native artists? What is an, what is a native artist? Like we don't even know yeah. anymore. Um, but the thing that's fascinating to me about that is, I mean, that's survivance, you know, that's like, yeah. that's like generation. It yeah. And it's, and it's a generation. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a perfect example of that because I was raised on that, you know? And so I'm a, I was a baby who grew up underneath the booths at, Indian markets and art fairs, you know, across yeah. the country and, and, um, listen to my mom, like answer the same question over yeah. and over to like a, a, um, uneducated, uh, um, uh, culture, like an uneducated, um, um, group of people asking about like native questions, but only expecting and wanting like certain answers, you know? Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's That's really crazy that you grew up with that. That's crazy that you grew up kind of in that conversation. I mean, like a lot of people that I know did, you know, like, um, all of you that I think from the humble collective, um, and Yataka and like all of these people that grew up going out there had that conversation playing in the back of their mind, you know, as they were right. forming themselves as artists. Well, and as human beings, like developmental yeah. stages of our yeah. generation's life, you know what I'm saying? Like how many of us are, you know, uh, of divorced parents, you know what I'm saying? Like how many of us are literally fed and clothed and sheltered through like native art, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And native culture. I mean, that's the other thing is like our, our generation is like the first generation that got to experience what it means to be a native person um, from a cultural and spiritual freedom, you know, like 1978, yeah. it was legal for us to practice our religious ceremonies. And there's yeah. a whole generation of people my age who never knew what it meant to not be native or have to hide that, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And so I think that generated something in our heads where it's like, we have that sort of freedom, we have that sort of agency, and yet when we engage with the population, they are not, um, they're not equipped to, to engage with, with us on that level because their understanding of our culture is relocated to a historical context, you know? That's so crazy. Like, I mean, you know, I didn't grow up at market. Like I didn't have any examples of that, but like I saw it 
unfolding. What you're, t- I saw what you were talking about unfolding, and I came on the scene. I was very much a part of Santa Fe. As soon as I started making films, they had the um, the uh, Native Cinema Showcase happening there, so I was showing films there, and you know, and I started like meeting the people in Santa Fe, and there was a big divide between what the market was sort of asking for and what a bunch of my ragtag friends were doing all over the place. I remember going just, just to like graffiti shows, hip hop shows. I remember like Rose and them had that band play at an art show, you know, like there was so much going on that was sort of this really interesting, cool underbelly to what was happening. Um, on the money level that was going on in Santa Fe. And, you know, there were people talking about this forever. I mean, Shane Goshorn talked about it when she was back in the day. I mean, like Richard Ray Whitman talked about it. I mean, Richard Ray Whitman did artwork sort of calling out this Santa Fe market type of work that was happening and had the pressure on artists to do that. You know, I've seen pieces of Richard's that, that were directly addressing that. Um, and, you know, so it's interesting. It was interesting for me to kind of step into this world that was super, super exciting, which was like, you know, I came from Oklahoma. There's no fucking art galleries in Oklahoma. You know, at the time there was like no art galleries in Oklahoma. There were no art shows. I, like there were no, there was not a lot of like celebration of native art. The celebration that had happened at the Filbert was before my time. And that was when, Dick West and like Fred Beaver and all those artists were, and, and, and Jerome Tiger, they were all making their name there, but like that was way before my time. So by the time I came into Oklahoma, like kind of come of age, I didn't know what was going on in, in a conversation about native art until I went to Santa Fe and I saw all these different sort of tiers of what was going on, you know? And obviously like I gravitated towards all the younger like artists that were like yourself, you know, like that were doing these interesting things. And I remember like, you know, speaking of the 1491s, like we were doing that at the time. And I remember when I met the day that I met you um, and your brother almost beat up Ryan Redcorn, we were doing a video called uh, uh, I'm an Indian too, which is off this old song. And it was just Ryan running around with hipster written across his chest uh, dancing to people and we put it to the song and there's this like juxtaposition that's happening in the video, which is like, we, we would go to real natives and have them dance with him that knew him, you know, and like Ryan had kind of become someone that people knew at that point, except your brother. And, um, uh, and then we would go to white folks that were like dressed in turquoise and like native prints and like whatever that Santa Fe crowd. And we would like be kind of clowning on them in a way, you know, and like, they just loved it, you know? And like, um, so we were doing this sort of weird multi-layered sort of subvertive video about identity and the market. Right. Like, and mm-hmm. about like, how the, like everyone comes out for the market and what they want, you know, like I mean, the first time I went to Indian market, this is crazy. I was staying in a hotel First time I went to the market and I walked through, it was like La Fonda or something. I, I forget what crazy hotel it was, but I walked into the lobby and there was a native man in buckskin playing the flute. And there was just like 90 year old white ladies surrounding him, sitting down, like listening to him. And I was just like, Whoa, I've never seen that before. Like yeah. this dude's getting paid 
to play the flute to these old white ladies. And so like, it's sort of encapsulated what goes on there. But then I learned that there's also this really sort of solid, um, uh, genuine idea of native art that's happening at the same time, sort of in the underbelly of what was happening at Santa Fe. And so as we were doing that video, we were also running into you. And, and I remember in your shows, like you and Micah, who gave me my cigar that I'm smoking today, but like you and Micah and I, you had these um, pieces that were boom boxes with headdresses on and feathers coming out of these boom boxes. And you were saying the same exact things that we were talking about in our video. And so automatically I just felt connected to that whole crew of people. And I met a lot of people through you all. Yeah. It was pretty yeah. interesting, but like in Oklahoma, we weren't having those conversations as much, you know, Hey, uh, hold two seconds. All right. We're recording again. Let Ginger edit this a little bit. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, so I think that that is, um, I mean, that's, we could probably go on about the why, you know, of, of, uh, love and fury, but I think it's important to also recognize that, um, you know, like the settlement project, uh, we were subject to a global pandemic, you know, and in the middle of you working on producing uh, or uh, filming and and creating this yeah. this narrative to to gather footage and experiences of native people, um, we also got hit by uh, a, a huge God. culture changing moment. Amazing, and you World know, changing, World, yeah, and know. and. World changing, world changing pandemic, you know, coronavirus experience. And now you have to release a film in the wake of, of that, you know. Um, yeah. And so now people can't go to movie theaters yeah. and, and uh, everyone's sheltering in place. And I think it's important to really talk about how we have um, adapted our strategies to, to, you know, in response to a global pandemic. Um, what was your experience kind of releasing this film in that? And, you know, it was crazy. I, I'm, I'm interested to hear like yeah, how you really, adapted, you know, it was crazy because I had this film that was premiering at the hot docs international film festival this is a huge documentary film festival. It takes place in Toronto. So excited. Like it was going to get a premiere there. I was going up, you know, it's like showing the film. Obviously there's a native community in Canada and Toronto. I was so excited to be showing this film there. And then, you know, it gets, the festival gets canceled and it's going online. Every festival got canceled. That's going online, which as a filmmaker going online, sucks you know it's like you make films for people to be in the seats watching the film you know like going online without distribution if you're not going on netflix or something you're just putting it on youtube for free you know and so that was like yeah. really difficult to sort of navigate at the same time i wouldn't be an artist if i didn't roll with the punches easily you know like i would have <laughs> given up a long time ago I, I didn't make money at this for a long time. I, I didn't know if people would ever watch these films for a long time. I never knew each time I was making a film, I didn't know what people were going to say. I mean, like I grew up, I came up in this industry in a time when the conversation was not 
we love diverse voices. We love people of color. It was no one makes native films. Native films don't sell. We don't want to fund your film. I got told the first, my first film that I was going, trying to make, I was in LA doing meetings and I got told we love this script so much. We would love to make it. If there was any way that you could get Philip Seymour Hoffman or, or someone like that on your poster, we would possibly make it. And I was just like, it's about Indian guy, people in Oklahoma. Like, there's no way to get Philip Seymour Hoffman on the poster. Um, and it was just this period in independent film where there was no money. And there was definitely no money for natives, native films. Uh, I mean, like, and it was like back then, it was the people were honest and bold enough to say, yeah, like, there's no native films getting made at all. You know, now it's different yeah. because TV has broken open and TV doesn't give a shit about you know, name actors or whatever. And they, and they celebrate diversity, very different still from the feature film world. I have a feature film that still hasn't been made that I wrote four years ago. It got me a lot of jobs because people liked it, but it's never been made. And I, and literally two years ago, a producer asked my manager if I would be cool with changing the main character. It's a revenge movie about a native guy. And they said, would he be cool with changing the main character to a white guy because we could probably get it made. So that's still happening in the feature film world. But when I was there, there was no TV. There was nothing like this, no streaming. Yeah. And I was in this period where no one wanted to make films. And so you learn to like roll with the punches and you learn to, and, and like, I still had my, my parents and my, my, my grandma and my dad in my head saying, don't ever give up, like do something with this like you're good do something with it that was running through my head always and my teacher from high school saying don't ever have a fallback plan because you'll fall back all that shit's running through my head still and i just kept going and i just kept like I, and i remember even back then when no one would make my films i went back to oklahoma and i made my films for very 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 low budget not even considered a budget in hollywood like just zero dollars no one got paid And I just was like, I know that if I keep doing this, the industry will catch up with me someday and it'll be cool to make these films and I'll get to make these films. And obviously that was like a big gamble and I didn't know if it really would happen, but you know, it sort of has happened. Like, like it did catch up. Um, So when a global pandemic strikes, when your film's about to premiere at a really cool festival, um, I just rolled with the punches and I was just like, I can get really upset about this or I can just say it was meant to be. And this film, this was what was supposed to happen to it. And what a treasure that I have in my hands (laughs) that the world doesn't get to see. And there's also a part of me that is okay if this film doesn't get distributed because it's still not distributed. It's still going to festivals, online festivals, but it's okay for me right now if it doesn't get distributed because I think it's a film that gets more important every day that goes by. It's a film that gets more important every year that goes by. It's a film that grows in importance and it's a film that captures something of people that were doing this and their passion and, and that stuff ages so well, like, like it's not immediate. You don't have, it doesn't have to be immediate. You can wait on that. And you know yeah. what, you know what I want to do? I really want to turn it into 
I don't know if you know the film Seven Up. Um, yeah. Michael Apted film. He just passed away. Rest in peace. I would love to do this film as a series where I come back in 10 years and film everyone and see what they're doing right then at that time. You know, like I would love to just continue it. And I mean, you know, as I was making the film, the whole idea behind it was that it was going to be a series. Like I was going to do this film and then I wanted to turn it to a series where I could follow some of the artists that were only performing or just in the film limited in a limited way i would follow them for an episode and there's so many other artists like you there's no way to make one film about all the amazing native artists that are out there and even artists that i've met since i made the film you know like there's so many interesting uh so much interesting work that's coming out that like i want to turn it into a series where i can just keep telling this story but like i also want to make it in the way that I want to make it, which is, I, it's not precious. It's not, um, I don't explain anything to people. You don't get a history lesson in it. All I want to do is make it, throw it right in people's faces and say, this is what's happening. And I don't care if you like it or if you understand it, or if you agree with it, this is what is going on. Uh, you know, you can take it in or not. Like, I just want to present it, you know, and there's something cool about, you know, a, a series would be cool, but also revisiting this film with the same characters 10 years later would be like a dream, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it was really kind of fascinating because I didn't know, I don't know anything about film or filmmaking, you know, and, uh, and really, I got to know you a lot better during the process, you know, and, um, we spent several, we spent several weeks together. We like, know each other really well at the end of the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and I think the way that it was, that the, that it was documented, it had this, um, it's like, I don't know how to give you a, a synopsis of what it, it, it was going to be because it happened, like from the hip, you know? Um, and I think like our population as native people is relatively low as, uh, people who are a part of like the public sphere artists in any way, shape or form is an even smaller section of that demographic. And I think one thing that was really fascinating was to see how, um, how intersectional our practices were in that, in that space, you know, and being able, I, I, I think you're, you know, spot on with the fact that, um, you know, if it isn't, if it didn't have the opportunity to be received and, 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 uh, have the exposure that it, that it, uh, deserves, you were there in those moments. And there is, I mean, that's, that's priceless because some, some of those like moments that coalesced, you know, were, um, aren't going to happen again like that, you know? And so to have documentation of that, even just from, from my perspective as an artist, um, knowing that there is somebody there who can share those moments is huge, you know? Um, and I do like, I do like the idea of like the seven up, uh, model and seeing where we're at 10 years down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I do know that we, um, all of us who are working in this industry right now, um, like I said, the market, you know, kinks the hose. And right now it's like being released in a way that, um, 
is um, there's a lot of pressure buildup behind that. And, you know, with that, there's all sorts of things that I can guarantee you, we think we're doing the right thing in the right place, but we have no idea. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if, you know, 10 years down the road, like my children or my children's children are going to look back at the moment that I created and be like, man, they screwed it up for us. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) These fools like try to tell people who we are at some point in history, like, uh, what TC Cannon, what did he say? Uh, we are the embodiment of tradition at this very moment. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Through, through our, through our present work will evolve the subtle, like, what does he say? Nuances and mannerisms that the far future will either praise or abolish, you know? Totally. And, and like that, that's spot on. I kept looking up over here because it's literally written. I was wondering, on my I was like, are you reading this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's it, the the really cool thing is this is totally a um, humble piece. Well, you know what? It's going to be easier for me to just move my entire camera. This is from Humble Times, and it sits above oh, cool. my door as I leave every day. That's awesome. Um, painted on a record. So who who all was in Humble? There was a ton of folks. Right? I mean, Roselle was in it, right? Like yeah, Michael, there were, well, we, we were all students at IA, IA at the time, so it was yeah. like um, Micah, myself, uh, Rory, wake him up. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rose he, he made me dress up. By the way, I didn't realize you knew him. He made me <laughs> once dress up in Minneapolis in a uh, bear suit. Star Wars. Some of us were in Star Wars suits. I think I was dressed as a bear. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a there was this native kid from up there with a with a bat and he just kept coming by and hitting me in my nuts because i couldn't see well out of this like bear mask <laughs> and this kid would just hit me in the nuts every time he walked by so that's how i met rory <laughs> yeah rory and i were roommates um uh we we read like the first humble space ever was a warehouse space um, that me and Rory, uh, th- like rented together and he lived, his bedroom in our warehouse space was an RV that he had parked <laughs> inside of our house. Oh, like yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, and we, when I first, he had gone to IA for like, I don't know, several years before I got there yeah. and, um, we're like same color skin, same height both have tattoos. I had long hair at the time. He did too. Same, like kind of rough Indian mustache, you know, and, uh, everyone would confuse me. Everyone thought I was Rory and he would have shit all over the place. Like he'd be working on a project over here and over there. And, and, uh, facilities would always like come up to me and they're like, Hey, uh, you need to clean that stuff up, you know? And I'm like, uh, I don't think yeah. so. I don't think I do have. I'm to the win. other light skin native. You yeah, yeah. They're like, <laughs> they're like Rory. We asked you several times, and then like, I'm like, I'm not Rory. I'm not. Rory. Finally, I was just like being like, "Fuck you." Rory says, yeah. "Fuck you." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you fucking clean it up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. And then the the two bulls uh, family. Yeah, yeah, so like yeah. Mike, Doug, Marty. Um, there was another uh, uh, artist, Matt. Matt the knife, uh, Toodle, and he is an Oklahoma head. Um, yeah. he was going to, he was going to, um, 
he wasn't going to school, but he came out to like the humble pro- like shows that we were putting on. And was like, he wasn't going to school. He was just, he was, he was couch surfing. <laughs> he ended up going to school at IA, oh, but yeah. he just like moved there or he just moved to Santa Fe. But it was, it was interesting. Um, and I think it was, like I said, there was, there was no demand and yet the supply was so backed up like my own experience as a as an artist it was uh frank buffalo hide that really made me think like ah like the first time i saw one of frank's exhibitions so sick man it's so good and and he'd been he'd been you know working through that in that market that did not it wasn't they weren't, they weren't receiving him. And yet he kept producing this work that I was just like, this is the first time that I've seen a a native art exhibition that actually speaks to me as like a a child of the eighties, you know? Um, And that's what, I mean, honestly, like that exhibition that I saw of his was the first time that I was really like, you know what? there needs to be a demand for this. They've missed out on, on they've wasted our population and our, our experiences, you know, um, by not accepting and receiving the voice of, of this generation, you know? Um, and yeah, granted throughout time, there's been these outliers that have really pushed the edge of what native art could be, but the market itself didn't, um, beyond the outlier didn't like produce or support anybody to kind of like build a movement around that, you know? So what's interesting about like film is it's so young compared to native art, you know, it's like, you know, like, I mean, it's interesting because like, as long as film has been around natives have been a part of it, but we were the other, we were, we were zombies in the zombie movie, right? We were the, we were the people with no souls that were attacking the white people in all these films throughout history. Right. And like, they needed to be done with us. And we were representative of the West and the wild and whatever, you know, and that's where, that's how we entered this space, you know? And so as a kid watching this stuff, like my Indian market or my like training was like watching Westerns when I was a kid, you know, and like this weird feeling of like, I'm so excited that I'm watching a film called the Seminole Wars. Cause I'm Seminole and these are Indians fighting these white guys. And I'm super excited, even though they're all dressed like Lakotas and speaking probably like Navajo, but like, I was so excited. Me and my dad were just like, yo, Seminoles on screen, not really Seminoles, but whatever. We'll look past that. This is exciting, you know, because they said our name, you know, it's like they said who we were all of a sudden. And so, you know, I think that native film is in its infancy, you know, like we had smoke signals and then there was like this 20 year period where it was like all of us independent filmmakers, like, outside of Indian market showing our films in some ragtag building, you know, trying to get anybody in the industry to hear us and be excited, you know? So it was sort of happening at the same time that you, that you all were exhibiting your work and sort of working outside of this market, we were doing the same thing. Um, and now it's all sort of accumulating at the same time. It feels like all this new stuff's happening, you know? And, um, yeah. It's it's super exciting and and you know like just loving the love and fury of it all. It's like 
like, I don't know. It was such a fun, you know, like I learned, like, I remember you, you just said something about like, uh, me, like being there for those moments is like the mm, kind of the most magical part of it. And it's true. And, and that's what I, it took me a few films to learn that was, but it also was easy for me to learn because like most filmmakers are worried about their film getting distributed and being a big hit and making money and all of this stuff. Well, I never thought that was going to happen because we were making native films and there was no money. No one wanted to see them. No one gave a fuck, you know? So like I learned that what I love about filmmaking is the making of it. I don't give a shit about the finished product, you know? So bring on a global pandemic. I made the film already. That's the film that I made. Yeah. I was there. I was there. And then I put it together and whatever happens after it goes out, like it's not, it's not in my control. So there was a bit of like peace with myself as far as like, what's going to happen to this film. Um, because I, I've been through that process so many times of just, you know, uh, we work without a net. Yeah. You work without a net you don't get support and you just make these films and you hope it changes people in your community's lives. You know, it's like one of my favorite moments ever was I was doing a, uh, I was doing a 1491s gig in, uh, Vancouver and I flew in. Some of the other guys were already there. And, um, this woman picked me up in this like straight up powwow van, you know, she picked me up at the airport and, uh, we're driving. She's a sweet lady, native lady. And she's like, um, I wanted, I asked them, she's like, I work for the company, the organization that brought you. And she was like, I asked them if I could pick you up. I was like, Oh, that's cool. You know? And usually when you go into a city and like you have your bag, you've been flying, you're not in the mood to be like, the most pleasant person in the world is just like, give me to the hotel and whatever. Yeah. And sometimes things shake you out of that. And this was that time that shook me out of that. And, and she's like, we're driving and she's quiet for a while. And then she says, you know, I asked them if I could pick you up. And uh, I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, thank you. You know, and she was like, yeah. She was like, I, I saw your film Barking Water. And she was like, I really love that film. And she said, um, it made me forgive my father and barking mm. water is about a man dying. And it's about a man, you know, I watched it not long ago. I was at a screening and I watched it and what it reminds me of now that I have time away from it. And that's the beauty of film is it becomes something else. Like whatever you thought you were making later, you find out you weren't making that film. And what I realized as I was watching it is, is, is it's all a dream. It's not real. It is a dying man's dream about what he would want to happen, but it's never going to happen, but right. it does happen in my movie. And what happens is he's dying and his ex lover breaks him out of the hospital and she's going to give him a ride to his, where his daughter lives on the other side of Oklahoma and take him down there and let him see his grandbaby before he dies. That's the whole premise of the movie. And they had this tumultuous relationship. She left him. He was an asshole. She left him. Uh, she had wanted kids. She couldn't have kids. They never had kids. They separated and he moved on with his life. And then one day he comes to her house and says, I'm, 
I'm terminal. I have cancer. And then he ends up in the hospital and she goes and breaks him out. And like, I'm going to take you to see your grandbaby. You haven't met yet. And that's the whole movie. And so she told me, she said, you know, you let me forgive you. You allow that film allowed me to forgive my father. And she said, my father was just like that man. And so many men of that generation were like that Indian men. And she said, you know, he made a lot of bad decisions. He left a lot. He wasn't around enough. But she said, your film showed this humanity to that person. And it allowed me to forgive him. And she was telling me this. And I'm just like kind of floored and like, you know, like uh, really honored that she would say that to me. And she takes a back road in this neighborhood. And she said, you know, there was, we were taking back roads and then something was going on with her car and she pulled on onto a main road, huge main road and the car breaks down and then it starts raining. And so we're there. I just got picked up from the airport. We're broke down and we're like fucked. Right. And then we're in the middle of a lane and it's like this busy, crazy street. Well, these like Mormon kids, these like two or three Mormon kids see us. They're like white shirts, black slacks, white as clouds they're going door to door or whatever preaching mormonism converting people and they happen to see these two natives in a powwow van break down in the middle of the road and they all jump out in the rain and just like push us and we all fucking push the car off into the back to a side road and then we have to call people to come get us and it was just this crazy kind of turn of events. And then that night we're about to go on stage as the 1491s and the ladies on stage. And she says, you know, uh, she tells the story that she, that my film reminded that let her forgive her father. And she says that like, I know that he was with us today because when we broke down and that's why we broke down, she was like, because my dad would always take back roads because he didn't want to get pulled over by the cops. And so she was like, I took the back roads and then we broke down. And like, then there were these like white, like Mormon kids that saved us. And it was just like one of those moments where it's like, yeah, my films didn't get major distribution. They made zero dollars. No one saw them, you know, uh, they got good reviews in the New York times or whatever. And like played at independent films and won some awards. But the reason that I make them is for that, that, you know, it's like that happened. Like she connected with it. She's in Vancouver, you know, and I'm making a film in Oklahoma about a native man and woman in their later stages in life. And it, it connected with her, you know? And so, and you know, when we made that film, it was just like, it was the first film that I made that was like, I wanted to infect that film with our community. So everywhere we went, every place that we went, because in Oklahoma, you drive 30 minutes, you're in a new tribal territory. And so we shot it all over Oklahoma. So any new community that we would go to, we would connect with the local community. We would have, we would talk to them. Of course they wanted to feed us and have an, have some sort of event. And so we would let them feed us. You know, it sounds rude when it's like any other culture, but like, you know, in a native culture, it's like you let them feed you because it's an all, you know, that's what they want to do. Yeah. That's and their honor. Exactly. <laughs> and so like, you know, we would do that all over until like, well, I remember when that film was finished, 
I was like, I don't care if anyone liked this. Like I had so much, there was so much beauty and connection and art in making it that I don't care what happens to it. That's only happened to me a few times. And that's what I strive for. Um, when my show Reservation Dogs comes out, that's how I will feel about that. Like, I know it's good. Like, I don't care if anyone likes it, but it also that's happened. My... It also happened with uh, Barking Water and it happened with Love and Fury. It was like the making of that film is what was important to me. Like, it wasn't about anything else. And so, like, I don't know. It's like filmmaking is a process. And, and are you in it for the process or are you in it for what happens afterwards? Like, I don't know. Like, that's not what I'm in it for. Like I'm in it for the process. Yeah. That, that's a good segue into kind of what, how, how I'd like to close out our conversation for, um, for this is it's still the pandemic. We're still talking over zoom, you know, we're both in our little wooden studio spaces. (laughs) It it looks like almost as if we're on opposite, like we're battleshipping a couple of, we're in the same house. Yeah. Yeah. We're battleshipping our, our, our (laughs) laptops. (laughs) Um, But you also not only released a film, but also, filmed uh, a series that's coming out that's called Reservation Dogs. And I'd also be interested in asking you about that because this is the power of transmitting our settlement project into a digital occupation is that we get to, rather than occupy space like the settlers had done here in the Americas, we get to actually bring our lived experience and share that on a global uh, yeah. uh, space and scale. Yeah. So I think it's also important to to talk about. You know, I I honestly I like this version of settlement because yeah. it is contrary to um, what we were kind of in response to. You know, yeah, um, totally. And 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 I'm I'm interested what's happening where you're at, you know, and I know that you've been working on this and I'd, I'd like to get a little input on your experience with uh, reservation dogs. Yeah, man. It was, it was just crazy. I mean, like, you know, uh, probably like three, four years ago, I, I got my first job uh, in TV, which is with HBO doing an adaptation of the, um, the book there, there by Tommy orange. Um, and so that opened this crazy door of like, all of a sudden people were like, Hey, what else you got? What's going on? And that had never been my experience. All of a sudden, like I was getting requests for meetings and like all this stuff was happening. Um, I've been friends with Taika YTD for a long time. He and I uh, started doing this together. I mean, like, our short films were showing, uh, together at Sundance. Um, we just became friends. I mean, literally like connected over our backgrounds, even though he's from New Zealand and I'm from Oklahoma, similar backgrounds. Our dads are very similar. Um, we ended up becoming like the guys that sing under pressure karaoke together for everyone. So like, Literally to this day, I get requests for, for that. If, if, if he and I are in a room together, people, someone's going to request we sing under pressure together. And <laughs> uh, we just have been friends. I mean, like whenever he was not, he got nominated for an Oscar for a short film, Two Cars, One Night. I was literally, while he was in there waiting on 
to know if he got an award or not. I was in the limo with the New Zealand Film Commission teaching them how to drink bush to, to, to down bush lights. You know, like I I've been friends with him forever and uh, you know, we just, but like, I always kept it as that. It's just like, we're friends. I've watched my friend catapult into this like Hollywood figure making Thor now making a star Wars, like insane watching your friend go through that, you know, but like, I just always was like, we're friends. And he was the same way. We just treated each other as like brothers and you know, that's it. And, you know, we would connect every year or two. And like, uh, and then once I started getting jobs in LA, I was going to LA a lot and I was going to his place in LA. And every time I'd be in LA, he would have a, he would have friends over for dinner and we'd hang out. And, you know, for years, uh, Taika would have me tell stories that I would to- have told him about home. He just thought they're <laughs> hilarious and would just like, it was like his party trick. Like he'd just be like, all right, tell him the one story that you told, you know, like that, like I would just be telling all of his friends these stories. And so, but you know, that was it. We're just friends. And then one day I was in LA and I was working in TV and doing some stuff and taking meetings and whatever. And he said, you know, I have this uh, deal at FX because he has uh, what we do in the shadows at FX. And he said, we should do something if you have an idea. And he and I, throughout our whole friendship, we used to always like bitch at each other because he would write a script. Like for instance, I was telling a friend, Bird Running Water, who's a close friend of ours. I was telling him one day, I said, hey, uh, I got this script. I'm really excited about it. Uh, it's about a native kid in Oklahoma in the eighties who loves Michael Jackson, perms his hair, has like the Michael Jackson coat. And it's just about him. Like, and then he was like, uh, have you read Tyka's script boy? And I was yeah. like, no, why? He was like, read it. And so I like wrote Tyka. I was like, I'll read boy. He sends me the script. I'm like, I read like five pages. Like, fuck. Like it's the same thing, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I'm, when I made barking water, he also had a script about, two older couple on the road, one's dying. And he was like, fuck, you know? So we would always like, write. We would always like beat each other to the punch on like our films that we were going to do. And uh, so it was pretty easy when he, when he was like, let's do something. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then the next day I came over, I was like, okay, about what we were going to do. What if we combine these two scripts that we have? And I had a script that was based on my dad. My dad is a martial arts instructor and has taught martial arts since I was four. I, I, I've taken martial Taekwondo with my dad. And then he, uh, cha- he started, he got a black belt, Jeet Kune Do, also like taught kickboxing and like trained under kickboxing. And so my dad, before it was cool to do mixed martial arts, because my dad was such a Bruce Lee fan, was teaching mixed martial arts from the time I was a kid. And so, uh, and, and we used to, in the eighties, we were these native, mostly native kids, couple white kids and to be all natives and a couple white kids. And we were in, my dad had this like Buick. that was my aunt's. It looked like a Batmobile. It was fucking huge. It was a tank. You could never, it, if it crashed into any new car right now, fucking obliterate the car and it wouldn't have <laughs> yeah. a scratch on it. Yeah. And like, we would drive this thing. My dad would drive and it was just piled with kids. And we would listen to Beastie Boys, uh, uh, License to Ill. And we would just sing that whole fucking tape and go. And we were known as like, we were this small town karate school, but we would go to these tournaments all throughout the state. And we would just 
clean up and kick ass. And we were known as like the kids that couldn't do forms at all, like katas and shit. We couldn't yeah. do that at all. We just didn't do that at all. But we could fight and we would just <laughs> fucking scrap and win. We would win the whole thing, you know? And so we had this reputation as like scrappers. And so I had this script where I was like, I want to do uh, kind of like a Rambo scenario. Like, like there's this like old native fucking martial arts expert that lives out in the woods and all these kids are getting bullied and they go out to the woods because they heard about him and they're like having to convince him to like teach them how to fight so they can fight these kids. So that was my idea. And then Taika had told me about an idea that he had about a vigilante in this like Maori village, right? Like where uh, this kid thought he was like Batman and he would like wear a cape and a mask and like sit on the, (laughs) just like sit on the like Gotham, but he would sit on like a little house in the village and just watch the streets like Gotham. And so I always thought that was so funny. And so I was like, what if we combine these two ideas and made a show? And we just like, it was just like rapid fire we came up with the whole concept that night. Um, we came up with a name. We came up with everything. And, uh, you know, so I, I went home that night. The next day I wrote what I took notes. I wrote sort of a pitch document of what the show would be. I sent it to Taika and I was like, I'll hear about this in a year. Like maybe we'll talk about it in a year. Who knows? Whatever. And then I went to Oregon where the play, the 1491's play between new knee, between two knees was premiering. I went there and I was just there and, and my agent called me and they were like, uh, yo, what the fuck is reservation dogs? And I was like, <laughs> Oh shit. How do you know about that? Like, it's this thing with Taika. And they were like, well, you just got to offer on a pilot. Like a, they just bought it like this. And so then right after that phone call, Taika calls me, he's like, just sold reservation. Like he literally had a conversation with a producer. The producer called FX and was like, bam. And then it happened. And so we had this show. Um, and you know, it, it was so easy to write because it's his sensibility and my sensibility. And it's sort of our friendship together, like our humor together. Like we have a, like, like with different people, I feel like I have a different style of humor. So like with him, I have a very specific style of humor and it's very, native but also new zealand and maori you know it's like a mix of that and so that's what the show is and you know uh we're we're set to make a uh pilot tyke is going to come direct it and uh the the crew's flying out to oklahoma uh i'm doing location scouting with the crew we're setting up the look of it i'm talking to all these people we're planning it and then a virus hits and we're like, oh shit, we're going to make it no matter what. Like we're going to keep making it. We keep a few days later, we're like still trying to make it. And then uh, they close it. Taika was about to fly out. The rest of the crew was about to fly out and we were going to start shooting it. So Taika's stuck in LA. Everyone's stuck. The, the show gets shut down. And it's just like, what the fuck? Like I just made a documentary that's about to premiere. And then I have a TV show, like my first TV show pilot is about to get made. And what a fucking pandemic happens, of course, you know? So it's like, you know, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, you know, and so none of us know what's happening. None of us know if we're going to live or die and what's going to, what the future holds. Um, It's scary. 
and FX called Taika and I, and they were just like, Hey, we're committed to doing this. So do you want to write some more scripts? Like we'll hire you to write some more scripts for this. Let's get ahead of it and just be ready when this is over. And so that's what we did. We wrote four more scripts and then they were like, you know, things kind of lightened up, but it was still a pandemic. And they were like, we're going to, let's do it. We're going to shoot the pilot. And, uh, you know, Taika ended up, um, his dates for making Thor got pushed up because Australia was doing well in the pandemic. So they decided to shoot it earlier. And so because, so Taika had to take his, his, uh, so he had to take his children to New Zealand and then go to Australia and there's a quarantine in New Zealand and there's a quarantine to get into Australia. So that's a month of quarantining for Taika before he can even get into Australia. So he can't direct the pilot. So I direct the pilot and, uh, you know, a whole crew was there. It was insane. It was like, but like, to me, it was like, of course, you know, my other friend, uh, Sierra Ornelius had a show called Rutherford Falls. They were awesome. It's a native film and they're our native show. Uh, she's Navajo. And so they're making their show. I'm making my show. And it was like, it was sort of a point of pride of just like, yeah, of course, natives are going to get their, their chance to have a show. And of course the universe is going to throw a pandemic at us. I would not have it any other way. Like I wouldn't have it any other way. That's the only way I want to make the first TV show to come out is during a pandemic. So there was a bit of like rebelliousness in the making of it. It was just like, of course we're going to make a film, a show in a pandemic. And you know, we had to get tested every day, like, or every other day. Um, Everyone had masks. It was like directing for the first time with masks on, like no one had no mask. Um, people that were close to the actors had to also wear a face mask. Um, you know, so it was all this, like everyone's first time doing any of this stuff. And also my first time directing a pilot of a TV show, which happened to be my TV show. Uh, so it was crazy, man. It was like, um, it was crazy. You know, and we, we cast native kids and like, you know, it was just this intense sort of surreal, really surreal experience, but it was wonderful. I mean, like what was cool about it and what I didn't realize would happen was everyone had been on lockdown. Everyone had been in pandemic mode. So all of a sudden you have 200 people that are hired and working, not only getting paid, but doing what they love to do. And everyone was so grateful and so happy to be be there and just to be feeling normal for a split second even though everyone had masks on everyone felt normal for a little bit and it was just like the the best experience i'd ever had shooting anything like it was beautiful Mm -hmm. um and the show is awesome i mean like you know it was a long process of like editing the show letting fx see it deciding if they're gonna make it you know like things like that um so that was scary. I didn't know if it was going to happen. And now it has happened. We're shooting the rest of it uh, in March and April. Um, so it was like nerve wracking. I didn't know it was going to happen, but um, it was a beautiful experience making it, you know? And I'm excited because like, for me, it also feels like it's a part of the conversation of love and fury. Like all of the art that everyone's making in love and fury. It's like, it asks no, it, it asks nothing of the audience as far as like 
Um, I'm not trying to teach you anything. I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, sugarcoat anything for you. I'm not trying to make this pleasant. It might be pleasant, but I'm not trying to make it pleasant. And if it's not pleasant, sorry. Um, and I'm just giving you this work because this is an expression of us. And that's how this show feels is that, uh, it's not in, it's not Indians versus Cowboys. It's not white people versus Indian. It's, it's us. It's a show about us and it's a show about what we struggle through, you know, Mm. and it's, and it's funny. It's about our humor, but it's also about, you know, our, our tragedy and everything, you know? So like, it feels very punk rock in that way, you know, like it feels very, um, in your face and punk rock. So it's super, just super exciting. I just can't wait for people to see it. And, you know, and since then, since, since the pilot, we were, I was able to hire a writer's room and it's all native, all indigenous writer's room. Um, first time that's ever happened in the history of TV or film. And they're letting us tell the stories, you know, just like how we would tell them. And it's really amazing. And like the directors are going to be native. It's just like the first time that this has ever happened. So, and you know, you're going to feel it when you see it, it's going to be apparent because it's just all native people telling these stories, you know, and hats off to FX, you know, they did it with Atlanta. Um, and so Atlanta kind of paved the way for us as far as like all the creators were these, you know, African-American creators of that show and writers. And they were really, because of the success of that show, they saw the value in letting people tell their own stories. And so when it came to reservation dogs, they were like, yeah, of course. And, you know, I had a conversation with them, um, because a lot of shows get shot in New Mexico and not any shows get shot in Oklahoma. Um, but it's set in Oklahoma and it's about tribes from Oklahoma and they wanted to shoot it in New Mexico. And I was freaking out because I was just like, and so I went to the country in Oklahoma and I took photos of the towns and then I went back to them and I said, look like, like, this is the town, this is where it takes place. Like it's sort of this, the first decay of Western expansion and, and what, what happened to this place. And also I said, the most important thing about a native show or film is the land. Mm -hmm. It's where it takes place because that is like our story. So the people that we're telling the story about, were moved on the trail of tears and displaced and brought here to this place. And we have to tell it here. If I'm telling it in New Mexico, I'm rewriting it for something else. And you know, I was ready for a battle, but like, they were just like, Oh yeah, cool. Let's, let's do it there. Like that was like that easy. Like that's how cool. <laughs> yeah. You're like cracking like, your knuckles and ready yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. bear I was ready for a war. I went and took photos. Like I'm sitting in playlists, like I'm ready to fight, you know? And they were literally just like, yeah, that's cool. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, how cool they've you know and it's like speaking of like institutions and allies and all this stuff it's also like we have to recognize who are like the good ones you know and the ones that will allow us the space to tell our stories or to do our work you know and and i think that's important too you know i think that's also sort of like a um a sort of an undercurrent to love and fury is there are spaces that do it right. And there are spaces that don't, and there's stories about both. Mm -hmm. And when we go to Plymouth, 
you know, the engagement didn't happen there and that's okay. Because what did happen was the real engagement was you talking to those people about native art and your experience just as a person and sitting in and eating dinner with those family, that family, you know, it's like, that's where the real shit was shared where they're talking about, you know, the grandma's there talking about how her town was bombed out during the war and how she didn't know if she was going to live or die and how she was living in a, in a bar and they all had to huddle up there and they didn't know if their bar was going to get bombed and if they were going to live or not. I mean, that's like the real connection that we were there for. It's really hard to put that in a film, but like, it doesn't need to be in a film because it happened, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know, like, 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 so for me, it's like, there are these places and institutions that we can work in that will allow us to be ourselves and tell our stories, you know? And I think that uh, more and more, that's where we will gravitate towards and there will be more opportunities for that. Yeah, I definitely, I totally agree with you. And I think the, the, you know, most important lesson that I'm learning, you know, through being in the middle of all of this and trying to figure out, you know, what angle, where, where I'm heading, who's good, who's not good, you know, um, and working with both, you know, is, um, like who's ready to get out of the way, you know? Yeah, Um, no, exactly. And, and that seems to be like the big driver for, um, you know, this, this movement of native art, the, the, um, exposure and opportunities is that people are starting to recognize that their calculated demographics and data points and stuff like that don't really tell the story of how we as human beings want to share and, and transmit ideas, you know? And I think so much of like, I mean, not only are we in a, in a pandemic, but we're both Americans. Like we just watched our country do some crazy, crazy mm-hmm. shit, you know? And, and yeah. on top of that, we watched like a presidential, uh, uh, election and we saw like 50% of that population, you know, um, which was yeah. a lot higher than I expected in all honesty, yeah. you know? And I was just yeah. like, I, but it's, it was more than I expected, but not, I wasn't surprised. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, yeah, I, well, you don't, you don't live in Oklahoma, so I don't, part of the but I am from North Dakota. You know what I'm saying? I like, Oklahoma, but like being in Oklahoma, I was like, as I was watching the numbers come in, I'm like this tracks, like this all tracks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally, totally. And there were some surprises and whatnot, but yeah, you know, I think it's, I think it's interesting because it, um, it shows that, the mechanism for deciding what people want is, uh, uh, a faulty mechanism, you know? Yeah, totally. And, and, and I think that there are, there's interest in good or bad, but just the, the, um, the machine that we've been using to decide what, what was going to drive the market and stuff like that. We're starting to see this machine clog, you know? And, uh, so yeah, now it's a question of who's going to get out of the way, you know, um, and allow, allow these stories to be told because I mean, the reality is like the, the art industry, um, is weird. I mean, any, any, 
any economic system that we're working in is has systemic problems, you know, and I think that those systemic problems are, you know, um, like I was mentioning before the metaphor of this kink toes, you know, it's, it's suppressed a lot of really interesting stories that, um, and traded them for myths, you know? And, and I think now we get to, you know, open up the flood. I think the pressure just built up too much. And now it's like expelling in so many different avenues and areas, um, that we're actually beginning to like, uh, uh, lean more into the intersections of humanity rather than the separations and deviations of it, you know, um, I, even, I hope so, yeah. well, even my exposure to like white supremacy for most of my life, I've been exposed to it, but it was also in the hose kinked up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it didn't, it wasn't allowed to express itself the way it has in the last like four no, years. Man. You know, like, you know, what's weird <clears throat> to me is like, I I've struggled with white supremacy as like a definition. Like, I don't know what it, I didn't know what it meant, you know, like, like I know what white supremacy is, but like, I didn't know what it meant in like everyday culture, you know? And I watched a uh, film the other day, like as a part of like the director's guild, like you get like early screeners of films. And this film was, a was about Martin Luther King and the FBI recording him and doing these secret recordings of him, trying to defame him and like, talk about how, um, you know, messed up he is and like, like a deviant, you know, or whatever, um, which only just made him more human. You know, it's like, yeah. finally I can like, I finally, I can like relate to this man that is so special to the world, you know, because he's human. Um, but really a trip to watch the interviews of people of journalists interviewing him back in the day and what was going on at the time. And you it really puts forth the idea that white supremacy is this institution and there might be white people that don't know anything about that or aren't benefiting from it but all of us are a part of it and the way that these journalists were talking to him was so relevant to what i had just seen at the capitol and all the hate and the shit that was spewing out And you realize that it's just been laying dormant for so long. It's just now getting these legs to where it can express itself. And just like you're saying, like all of a sudden it's spewing out, you know, and I, and and I feel like that's happening as well in a lot of things, art, native art, whatever. Um, But I, I, you know, like for me, we're in this really exciting period um, of, you know, like you look throughout history and nothing really interesting happens during uh non-tumultuous times it's like tumultuous times really bring about change you know and you start thinking about like mayans and all this stuff and it's like and the prophecies of native people and it's like we have been talking about change and the thing you know a global pandemic (laughs) come on like a global pandemic uh like white supremacists raiding the capital like all of this stuff is really extreme that we've never seen before in our lifetimes and not in our parents lifetimes maybe our grandparents saw some of it but like it's only going to create a better world i think like that's what i hope and that's what i think is it's going to create a better world it's also going to create some really amazing art and i have to believe in that because i'm an artist and and sometimes art's a reaction sometimes art is uh you know, like you say, it's a release of pressure 
and you get to finally express yourself in a way that you didn't before. So, you know, for me, it's like, that's what I kind of kept thinking the whole time that I was shut down, that the film's not getting to be premiered somewhere. Uh, that the whole time I was just thinking like, you know, something really good is going to come about this. Like there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, you know, I think for better, or for worse, it's like, uh, growing up a poor kid in Oklahoma and, you know, I never was without, like we, we had money, but like, you know, we lived in Indian housing, uh, an Indian home, you know, we, we, we tore down the garage and made it look nicer, but like, it's still an Indian home. Those bones are still an Indian home. And, you know, it's like, uh, growing up, just not knowing where your place is. Like, I, I feel great about what the conversations that are happening around native art and native, you know, just humanity in general, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Thank you for uh, you. Jo- joining <laughs> joining in on this uh, conversation. Joining on Chinooka, what do you call this? Uh, <laughs> Chinooka talks. What is this? What is this show called? <laughs> this is this is strictly this show is strictly for our um, engagement with settlement. I mean, you are one of the artists who was asked. Now, if I know if I know our people, all of them, and I don't want to know all of them, but if I do know them, they're gonna they're going to want this back, Jennifer. They're going to want you to keep doing a show. <laughs> yeah. The From now on, this is, this is Chinupa's headroom. Like that's the, exactly. yeah, there you go. I'll, I'll yeah, just glitch yeah, yeah. out every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs>